precisely because in an America once so rooted in the Bible, so many Americans have forgotten the Bible. Therefore, for many Americans who still embrace the biblical worldview, the marvel of resurrected Jerusalem provides for them the best argument for faith itself. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 104, Jerusalem and the World. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The volume, William Seward's Travels Around the World, describes the various journeys of the man who had become famous as Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State. One chapter brings the reader to Jerusalem, from which I cite several selected sentences. Quote, Our last day at Jerusalem has been spent, as it ought to have been, among and with the Jews, who were the builders and founders of the city, and who cling the closer to it for its disasters and desolation. For centuries, we do not know how many, the Turkish rulers have allowed the oppressed and exiled Jews the privilege of gathering at the foot of this wall, one day in every week, and pouring out their lamentations over the fall of their beloved city and praying for its restoration to the Lord. Here, whether it rains or shines, they come together at an early hour, old and young, men, women, and little children, the poor and the rich in their best costumes discordant as the diverse nations from which they come. They are attended by their rabbis, each bringing the carefully preserved and elaborately bound text of the book of the Lamentations of Jeremiah. For many hours they pour forth their complaints, reading and reciting the poetic language of the prophet, beating their hands against the wall and bathing the stones with their kisses and tears. During the several hours while we were spectators of it, there was not one act of irreverence or indifference. End quote. Now why is this reflection which comes to us in this volume edited by Seward's son, so remarkable. We do not need to be told that Jerusalem is sacred to Jews. What is fascinating about the story is what it tells us about Seward and his traveling party. They gazed with respectful reverence upon the mourning Jews for several hours, disregarding what may have been the Middle Eastern sun. The glory that was the Jerusalem of the temple had not existed for some time yet for these tourists. It was that Jerusalem that was in their minds. And it is here that the story of Solomon and the temple is particularly interesting. Solomon builds on David's vision by offering something profoundly new in his expression of his hopes and dreams for his capital and the temple that he had built. This can be seen from the book of Kings in one of the most remarkable addresses in the Hebrew Bible. As described in the book of Kings, Solomon, miraculously endowed with divine wisdom, gathers all Israel and Jerusalem around the festival of Sukkot to inaugurate the temple that he has built. And he delivers an extraordinary address explaining the theology of Jerusalem for all eternity. The Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, is brought at Solomon's instructions into the temple and the presence of the Almighty somehow suffuses the structure. Chapter 8, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. This represents a mystery that Solomon, as wise as he is, cannot solve. How can an infinite Almighty take up permanent residence in a home in Jerusalem? And so with all Israel gathered around him, Solomon in his address remarks at this enigma. Verse 27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. An infinite God making his presence manifest atop a finite ark is something that even Solomon cannot explain. And when we think about it, we realize 
that in Jerusalem, as is so often the case, geography and theology are intertwined. The mystery of the temple also reflects the miracle that is the Jewish people. A universal God who created the universe chooses to make his presence known first and foremost in one relatively small site on a relatively small mountain in the Middle East. And this reflects another surprise, that the God of all humanity chooses to be known to the world through one particular family, that the creator of all the earth seeks to be known on earth as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what some theologians used to call the scandal of Jewish particularity. As Norman Podhoretz once put it, quote, in wondering about the singling out of one city from among all the cities in the land of Israel, I find myself ineluctably led into its larger and even more mysterious context, which is the singling out of one people from among all the nations of the world, end quote. The critical question is, how does one react to this, quote-unquote, scandal of Jewish particularity? One possible response, as Podhoretz notes, can be found in the words of the British writer William Norman Ewer, who we now know was also a Soviet spy. To him are attributed the famous words, how odd of God to choose the Jews. One senses a scintilla of scorn within these words. But for non-Jews of biblical belief, the miracle of the Jewish journey through history can inspire not scorn, but awe and faith. And so instead of how odd of God to choose the Jews, I would substitute the reflection of another non-Jewish writer, the novelist Walker Percy, who once said, quote, where are the Hittites? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today there are Jews, but not one single Hittite, even though the Hittites had a flourishing civilization while the Jews nearby were a weak and obscure people? When one meets a Jew in New York or New Orleans or Paris or Melbourne, Percy continues, it is remarkable that no one considers the event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder, if there are Jews here, why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. End quote. Thus, the glory of the God of all the heavens dwelling in Jerusalem on earth is linked to the miraculous chosenness of the Jewish people. And this can inspire those far beyond the people of Israel itself. Therefore, in his speech, which is essentially a prayer to God, Solomon defines what he has built by speaking first and foremost of the temple as a site toward which all the people of Israel will pray. The temple will be a house of Jewish unity, as his father David dreamed. But in his speech, Solomon also adds something radically new. He says in verse 41, praying to God, Moreover concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. Solomon, in other words, looks forward to a time when all will be inspired by the miracle of the Jewish people to come up to serve God in Jerusalem. Solomon thus adds profoundly to David's vision. It is in Jerusalem that the world will reflect in awe on the story of Israel and thereby come to know the God of Israel. This is Solomon's goal, not all peoples becoming Jews, but of all coming to know the Jewish God. It is a great vision, but how to achieve it? The answer for Solomon was empire. For the only time in Jewish history, the kingdom of Israel under Solomon oversees an empire. Israel is a superpower, with many other surrounding states enthralled to it, and the goal for Solomon is to draw the whole world to Jerusalem. 
Solomon seeks, as Rabbi Alex Israel suggests, quote, to create a national enterprise that is so impressive, that is so imbued with God and so reflects his presence, that people will be amazed and inspired by Jerusalem, end quote. We find the first hints of success. We are told of the queen of a faraway land, Sheba, who comes to Jerusalem to praise the God of Abraham. But as the Bible tells us, maintaining an empire for Solomon leads to problematic policies, heavy taxation for the king's accumulation of funds, maintenance of enormous amount of cavalry, and most disastrously, the establishment of political alliances through Solomon's marriages to pagan princesses, first and foremost the daughter of Pharaoh. All of these actions were forbidden to Israelite kings by the book of Deuteronomy. A Jewish state, an Israelite state, must have The Bible wishes for a Jewish state, an Israelite state, to have independence and the power to defend itself. But this state will impact the larger world as an empire of ideas. A political empire like Solomon's allows Israel itself to be impacted by the pagans from whom it is called to remain apart. Solomon's vision of the world coming to know the God of Jerusalem was far-reaching. His mistake lay in how he sought to reach this goal. One is reminded of the line in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln movie, where the president is saying that it's not enough to have goals, not enough to have a vision. One has to know how to get there. Lincoln recalls working as a surveyor, and he says, quote, a compass I learned when I was surveying. It'll point you true north from where you're standing, but it's got no advice about the swamps and deserts and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination you plunge ahead heedless of obstacles and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, What's the use of knowing true north? End quote. The map to avoid obstacles, to avoid pitfalls, to avoid swamps, that map for kings is the Torah. In the end, what had begun as a dream of an empire that would turn the world toward the temple in Jerusalem concludes with pagan infiltration into the sacred city of Jerusalem. Idolatry infiltrates Solomon's family life and his polity. And It is with an understanding of Solomon's original vision that the painful punishment that follows is so fitting. Solomon sought to rule over the entire Middle East. In the end, God declares that his dynasty will not even rule over most of Israel. Chapter 11, verse 11. So that the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your mind, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Yet in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Nevertheless, I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon was the wisest man on earth, and he had a profound vision, but he did not avoid the terrible spiritual and moral pitfalls that were in the path of his achieving his goal. And yet Solomon's vision of the miracle that is Jewish Jerusalem ultimately inspiring the world, that vision remains. And one day, as Isaiah proclaims, all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem, saying, let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob. One day, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for Isaiah, will be universally acknowledged in Jerusalem, with the particularism and universalism of Jerusalem coming together. And here is where it gets really interesting. The redemption of the world has not yet occurred. But we do, ladies and gentlemen, live today in an age of wonders. To walk in Jerusalem, a Jewish city once again, to see Hebrew everywhere, to see the city expanded far beyond its walls, is to ponder in the best way the miracle of Jewish particularity, to wonder at the resurrection that it embodies, to marvel at the relationship that an infinite God has 
with one small people and with one city in the Middle East. And it is this miracle that today has inspired so many beyond the Jewish people itself. Precisely because in an America once so rooted in the Bible, so many Americans have forgotten the Bible. Therefore, for many Americans who still embrace the biblical worldview, the marvel of resurrected Jerusalem provides for them the best argument for faith itself. And therefore, Jerusalem now serves for so many non-Jews in America and around the world as a biblical beacon. My friend Eric Cohn, in a fascinating article, put it this way, quote, Jerusalem, the ancient holy city reborn, stands for many as the city of hope, the spiritual center of a Western renewal anchored in the Hebraic moral system. And he adds, For without God's election of the Jews, the biblical vision of human life as sanctified normalcy under commandment, courageously defended, might never have come into being. Jerusalem, forever the Jews' city of hope, and once again the West, is now the emblem of our shared purpose, to work with faith, political will, and moral resolve to rescue and defend our shared heritage from destruction and decay, end quote. The reverence of millions of non-Jews today, not only for Jerusalem, but for Jewish Jerusalem, is preceded by the reverence shown by William Seward for Jewish Jerusalem. As an introduction to this section, the volume about Seward's travels cites a verse from Ezekiel, and the name of the city shall be from that day forward. The Lord is there. The perspective put forward by this description of Seward's journey is that so long as Jews still venerate the site where the temple stood, so long as Jews believe that God still dwells there, then God still dwells there. Jerusalem, Jewish Jerusalem, is for Seward a source of inspiration and of faith. So it is for many today. And though the final universal vision of Isaiah is yet to occur, some of Solomon's hopes for Jerusalem are beginning to come true, with so many marveling at the miracles coming from this sacred city and so many hoping and praying for many miracles yet to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.